0: The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio.
1: This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Hi, my name is Tracy Doyle. I am the creative director of fashion and luxury at T-Brand Studio, The New York Times. And what I love about content is that long before brand becomes just that, becomes a brand, it generally started with the love and idea of one man or one woman, and I get to help tell those stories, and that's what I love most.
0: From New York City, you're listening to Content is Your Business, conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. Produced by Mouth Media Network, powered by Sennheiser, and brought to you by 24-7 Talent, the leading creative recruitment firm. Your hosts for this episode are Dahlia Strum, digital strategy and social commerce expert. Lisa Berger, Senior Vice President of 24-7 Talent. And Edward Hertzman, Founder and CEO of Hertzman Media Group and Sourcing Journal. And now, here are your hosts.
2: Welcome to the show. I'm Dahlia Strom, one of your hosts. And with me is Eddie Hertzman and Lisa Berger. Um, We're here with Tracy Doyle. So we're going to hear today about... Tracy's experience in the industry, working with, creating actually her own company and then switching over to T-Brand at New York Times. I'm kind of excited how you go from becoming a model and then transitioning all the way into a corporate position. And I think that's fascinating. So let's start off with sh- kind of an intro as to who you are, what you do, why you love it and how that happened. Sure. Sure. First, all and,
1: of that in 30 seconds. <laughs> First and foremost, I I still identify myself with a little girl growing up in a very small rural Ontario town with um, uh, the influence of an incredible grandmother whose who's mark on me is really immeasurable and with parents that really taught me how to be creative. And that really was, you know, when I was young, I saw that as a handicap because we didn't always have all the things that we wanted to have. And so I learned from them that things could still always be beautiful and that they always made things beautiful. My dad through woodworking or photography or sketching portraits or or a Tweety Bird for my for my tree house that he built me with his bare hands. My grandmother sewing my clothes for me and my mom making uh, beautiful uh, sandwiches and beautiful cooking and, and everything was always beautiful. And so I, I, I always identify myself, or I still try to, even though I've been in New York for 14 years, as that little girl from that small Ontario town. And I do that because I think that it could be very easy for me to become somebody jaded. It could be very easy for me to become something else, something that is influenced by the world that I, I live in and the industry that I work in. And so that first and foremost is who I am.
2: Interesting. So you just mentioned before that you didn't really know what T-Brand was. Tell us what that trajectory was to become part of it. That
1: is true. Uh, T-Brand Studios now five international offices. They span a a reach that encompasses the entire globe. So, of course, it started in headquarters at The New York Times. Um, in New York City. And then it was in London, in Paris, in the satellite offices of the New York Times there. It is now in Hong Kong, a functioning office and moving into Singapore as well. And I hadn't heard about T-Brand when I initially started these conversations about joining the company. At that point, I was running my own small business, very small, very scrappy, um, but doing that for a very particular reason. And and then learning about T-Brand Studio and being really excited at the prospect that perhaps I could become part of something that seemed so incredible and and sort of like a dream job. And that really is what it is. Um, it's it's quite a dream what I get to do day to day.
3: So for the listeners out there, what is T-Brand T Studios? Sure. I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. T, uh, I think we hear in the media that Content or sort of uh, media companies are starting content studios, and they come in various forms. Uh, magazines are doing it. Even Bloomberg is doing it. And that's sort of become something that is uh, that we hear a lot about. t and Studio is the branded content division of the New York Times, uh, it was started about three years ago, again, just like, like what I say about brands, with one or two people and an idea of what it could be. And now it's, I think, about 120 people, as I said, in five international offices. And really what it is, is to provide Timesian and content to brands, to companies who are looking for help telling their story. And when I when I was being interviewed for the job, I had 11 interviews over several months. I had to make a case study, and I also had to write some versions. Verbiage that would describe what I would bring to T Brand Studio that nobody else could in the sphere of fashion. What was my vision for that? And having had about 10 years of hard advertising experience in the fashion industry prior to that, um, I really, I wrote, I wrote a few words and I said, and I, I wrote it down so that I could read it verbatim to you. But I said, the idea that in its truest essence, the New York Times is a document of life being lived. And therefore, the natural stylistic extension of T-Brand Studio is a narrative. Above all, we are storytellers. And so for me specifically, I bring a storytelling component and a narrative component uh, into fashion for fashion clients or luxury clients. And I think that's really unique because it's not necessarily something that the industry has seen up until this point.
3: Are you Worried at all that the editorial integrity or the editorial authenticity that the New York Times is known for uh, may be jeopardized by by including branded content throughout the website or throughout the paper, and will the readers even be able to differentiate between the two?
1: Yes, that is a great question. Thank you for asking that. In fact, our newsroom is so stringent about the policies where that is concerned, because first and foremost, the journalistic integrity is what keeps the New York Times alive for nearly two centuries. And that is in no way compromised. If you land on branded content, it is clearly delineated that this is content by the brand that has commissioned the content. It is also delineated with a blue banner at the top. There is no way, shape, or form that that can be be mistaken. Um, Any social media posts are also, of course, hashtag with the appropriate uh, standardized hashtags that are known industry-wide. And a lot of people veer away from that or try to get around that. The New York Times doesn't. We we have to be really stringent about that.
3: Is this the publishing industry's uh, effort to kind of recapture some of the the advertising dollars that have been lost?
1: That's exactly it. Print dollars, digital pennies, or is some sort of saying, um, but there's no way that publishers can capture the amount of revenue that they were achieving in print sales that they do in a digital context. It's just, it's not possible. There's no, there's not, it's just not possible. And so to answer your question more specifically, yes, this is a way that um, amazing publications like the New York Times or like the New Yorker or like the Wall Street Journal, they're able to help make up some of that revenue to ensure that their publication continues on.
3: So you just named three very prestigious publications, but there is... Uh, almost everybody in the publishing space is in trying to capitalize on this I don't want to say trend, but this branded content strategy. Outside of those publications you named or yourself, do you think that there is a gray area that you know could jeopardize some of the journalistic integrity?
1: I think that's an excellent question. The way that I'll answer it is that I'm very proud of the standards that we're held to. And I think that's very important. And I understand and we understand as a studio why that is. And it's not for me to judge um, uh, judge the way that other people are producing this content. I only know that, again, I'm very proud of the way that we, we do, the integrity that we we have when we make this work, the thought, the research, um, the editorial integrity, and the staff that is there, just even simply um, their resumes and their astounding experience and what that brings to the table. And so for us, again, um, we do, there is no gray area. And I would hope that we would set a good example for other people in the industry doing similar kind of work.
2: So something that we had spoken about before is basically the fact that um, you're kind of looking at this as like an entrepreneurship, with an entrepreneurship mindset, right? So I think that there's an opportunity, especially in this space for entrepreneurship, right? And Lisa, I'm sure you can kind of speak to that with how, just how the space is flowing and like where you, you really are working on like a very minimal budget. What, what does that even look like for people?
4: Well, I was going to say yesterday, I mean, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, you know, you've got, you know, she's going with the T-Brand Studio. They're going right up against the agencies. Yeah. And WPP was on the front page. You know, it's it's doomsday, you know, for agencies right now. We just heard it from IPG today. And um, I just want to know, you know, sure. how are you? Wh- what is the lore for these fashion and luxury partners? And why aren't they going to the agencies? Why are they coming to you? Um, and then a second question to that is just, are you leveraging the New York Times – Newsroom audience and how are you curating that audience
1: differently now? Sure, of course. So the first question: Why are they coming? Uh, why are luxury and fashion companies coming to T Brand Studio? The answer is really because their needs have changed, and it's not um, that anyone is um, bad or good or um, wrong or right. It's simply that a brand needs different kind of materials today to keep a captured audience. They need different storytelling abilities, um, but they also need way more content. If you want to just break it down very simply, the brand, the brands have to engage with an audience on an almost consistent level throughout the day. Many, many posts. Um, having a campaign that comes out twice a year with, say, seven images that you get a few days of, of press about, that no longer... It no longer works for brands. And so they're coming to us because the way that we're trained and we inherently are storytellers and we make content and we come from a culture and we are influenced by a culture that makes you know think it's equivalent to the Holy Bible or a Harry Potter book every single day Um, across all the international offices. It's astounding. And so that is the mindset. And so we are being tapped because of that ability to make a lot of things very quickly um, at a very high level.
4: And with the quality um, that you're producing is... When you're setting goals with the brands, um, I'm sure there's different levels of value and KPIs, but is profit part of the conversation?
1: I mean, T-Brand Studio is a business. Uh, we are there to achieve revenue for the New York Times, just as any content studio is at any publisher. There's no, you know, there, we're, there's no debate about that. Um, what we... Guarantee, And I'm actually not uh, specifically part of this. We have an, an unbelievable audience development team that will set benchmarks, appropriate benchmarks that are based on a lot of factors. Um, sort of budget is one. Outreach, uh, they will provide a, a set of benchmarks for a client. And then we really provide a client with a dashboard. So there's no um, changing the numbers. There's no strange reporting. I mean, true and true of the nature of the New York Times the client can look at any moment in the middle of the night at 4am if they wake up and they're thinking how is my branded content doing they can go to their dashboard and they can see and we consistently achieve you know above benchmark and it is because of the high quality of the content and that's you know, undisputable. I also think there's something to be
2: said. So you mentioned that you create content based on storytelling, but I think there's something to be said about the fact that like the New York Times really creates like authoritative content and it's more about broadcasting for them. So it's kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You have like broadcasting and then you have like this mindset of storytelling, which really leads to a conversation. So how do you differentiate
1: between the two of those? I'm not a hundred percent sure I understand your question.
2: So, in terms of like the storytelling, you're looking to create more of an emotional connection, right? Yes. But New York Times doesn't necessarily do that with the majority of the content that they create.
1: Yeah, I mean, the New York Times makes such a wide spectrum of of content they might have a hard-hitting news story on the cover and it has to be very succinct and it has to read in 250 words or 50 words or what have you depending on you know the device that a person is viewing it at the New York Times has to make a variety of different content so they might have a hard-hitting news story but then they might have a long a, a long format essay in style or on you know in the Sunday paper there might be a different kind of content and what we're seeing more and more at the New York Times is the desire for Timesian style content but in things that aren't necessarily hard news so that there so there has been this unbelievable push behind cooking for example and Sam Sifton does the cooking section and it has become a newsletter and it has become in and of itself an entire very important division at the New York Times because not only is the New York Times an authority, uh, an authority on news they're an authority on everything. And if it comes from the New York Times, it has to be of value. There is a test kitchen. Everything has to be, even if it's a recipe, it has to be times quality. And I think for us, and certainly for me, that is what makes my job so alluring. I can't just put a girl on a beach with a fragrance bottle which is always my example because it irks me the most I think (laughs) it has to be actual content that is interesting and value-add and educational and uh, and that gives something else to to the viewer.
2: Yeah speaking of which that test kitchen do we get to do a little (laughs) bit behind
1: the scenes over there? (laughs) Sometimes in our cafeteria they do um, cooking day and it's a it's very, very popular. You have to go very early or everything is gone. Ah.
3: So I want to go back to the comment you made uh, a couple minutes ago that, it, that it's a business. And this is something as a publisher that, that I struggle with a little bit is understanding the economics behind this. You know, two years ago, let's say you sell a million dollars in ads and all you had to do is have your ad ops department put it up on the site, pay commission to your ad sales guy. Great. Or ad sales woman. Very clean, you know what your margin is now that same budget is not being lost, but now we 're being asked to produce content, attend events, create video content. They want this branded content experience, if you will. they want this story now, when I have to employ more editors to do this, more copywriters it 's more graphic work, the margin is significantly less the The revenue is there, and maybe even growing so we said before that this is a this is a means to make up for lost advertising dollars, but is, is it as profitable, or how do we make it as profitable as just pure, you know? Any industry's pages?
1: changing; you have to adapt, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I think that um, I I can't speak to revenue numbers, except to say that I think, except to say that I have a lot of awe for the people that run the New York times and other publishers, because it's gotten very, very complicated. And for exactly the reason that you just said, you literally used to be able to say, here's your, you know, your single page in the New York times on Sunday. And it's this amount and you, you know, you get a check. I mean, maybe that's over oversimplifying it, but there was a day that it was the, you know, sort of the heyday of that. It is now very complicated. I think from an operational standpoint to keep uh, a, a a magazine or a newspaper in a healthy place for, for again, the reasons that you said, because you need now different staff. I mean, we have creative directors and we have editors, we have an editorial staff that is just writing branded content. And they're uh, former journalists. These are all Times quality and Times, um, you know, Times quality journalists. There is a a staff of producers. There is, I mean, there's 120 or 130 people in T-Brand Studio that didn't exist three or four years ago. Um, And so the revenue, it's now much more complicated and I think much more difficult to make that up.
4: We're seeing this across the board. I mean, you're seeing like CNN, you're seeing Penske, you're seeing all these different brands that are – uh, vice they, that are going through layoffs and so uh, within the branded content studio but they're laying off creatives and it could be a handful at a time because they don't have the right skill set for this new agency of the future model so you mentioned that some of them are formal like former journalists mm-hmm. did you like seek them out in the organization and then bring them over and now they're newly employed in the t-brand studio or like what does that look like they're
1: not necessarily former um new york times journalists but they all have journalistic backgrounds so Mm. they have to have a certain um a style of reporting and an ability to report at at a times quality level right um but again it's uh, it's in, in terms, again, of the complexities of a staff, it's an audience development team. Right. Mm-hmm. It is a team of editors and writers. It is a team of creatives. It is a team of designers, mm-hmm. producers. We have a video team that just uh, helps handle the video requests. And they have their own set of producers. And so it's it's become very complex.
4: I feel like, um, you know, we were talking to Condé Nast, and I feel like there's an actual internal recruitment approach to find the storytellers within an organization
2: I love that so much I think there has to be yeah there
4: has to be especially Um, like when they're vested right right so it's just interesting to see where they were coming from whether it was an external recruit or an internal where they already are so familiar with the brand and the organization and the quality of the New York Times so it's like an easy transition or whether they were
1: we are from. very much church and state. We don't bring right. people mm-hmm. over from the newsroom unless they express there. Is, there is internal movement, of course, like any company. Mm-hmm. But we're very respectful that we. And again, it's it's because of the integrity of the New York Times. I think we're very respectful that um, we we are we're separate and we don't mm-hmm. necessarily have a lot of um, cross pollination. Sure.
2: So that uh, that. Um test kitchen talk before actually made me kind of hungry so i think we're gonna check out this snack that lisa brought out for us um it's actually part of the snack time that we do as part of the show and so tracy was short on time today and she had made a special
4: request for (laughs) gluten-free which is not my in my typical day-to-day so the i'm an equinox girl so all i could visually see was um what they sell at what juice generation. generation. I'm I'm actually really excited to try this.
2: (laughs) Is there an unveiling of the snack? Yeah, yeah. it's kind of an unveiling. She brought a special bag and everything. I'm coming every Friday. (laughs) Just for snack time, right? So if anyone gets heartburn, you might want (laughs) to.
4: I
3: I took my Nexium this morning. Thanks. (laughs)
2: Last time we had cookies every session. so,
4: All right, so everyone can take their pick. We have.
1: Oh, what? This is so cool. The defender. Oh wow. What's inside there. of that? We have little. Lemon, ginger, turmeric, oil of oregano, cayenne pepper. Wow. That sounds spicy. Who it's spicy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm not gonna have Blue, this if I'm talking. Allergy. Keep
3: going.
1: the <laughs> <laughs> green uh-huh. algae. Do you want the defend? Do you want the defender? Nope. Um, Hold on, there's
4: more. A vital shot: lemon, ginger, and cayenne.
2: Maybe. More spicy? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm leaning towards the algae. It's You're a guest. Cherry and turmeric? No. Oh, that's no? not bad. Maybe. <laughs> or Do aloe people vera. drink this stuff? Aloe what? <laughs> aloe vera. Oh, I like aloe vera. What? It's good for Uh-oh. your skin. It is.
1: Whatever.
4: Who wants these guys? Is that it? Are we at That's the end? It. So, so the visualization
1: pop- right now, as a creative person, I'll say that there are small shots, <laughs> shot size glass we should totally be taking bottles of these. that are coming out, and, and they're um, full of very really nutritious goodness. Free. Oh, my God. Gluten-free Pop-Tarts. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> Can we just take a picture of them and see what they look like? This is
1: wild harvested, even. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, it's really I, that bad. I'm going to wait until I'm done.
3: <laughs> I didn't expect it to be that spicy.
1: <laughs> Try this dark cherry. Uh, I think that could feel. be interesting.
2: Beware.
3: That's going to taste like uh, curry.
2: <laughs> I feel like we like should it. be cheersing these. They're so. Like, here,
1: you cheers. Gonna I'm going to wait. Okay, well, cheers. 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 Thank you
2: for coming. Thanks for cheers. coming that. Cheers. cheers. That is terrible. <laughs> 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 that is, how is yours? <laughs> tastes like curry oh that's terrible okay sorry so we're gonna jump to a quick break and then more with tracy doyle in a couple of minutes we'll see you soon
0: greetings mouth media network listener my name is davin riley and i'm willing to bet you like music and even if my assumption is wrong, I still think you should come and check out our show, The Music Lover Podcast, where we sit down with entrepreneurs, pioneers, artists, and the unsung heroes of the music industry. Together, we'll uncover the insider perspectives on some of your favorite companies and artists as we analyze music business trends through a technological lens. Find us at The Music Lover Podcast. But remember, that's music lover without the vowels. M-S-C-L-V-R. Yes. Yes. We're that cool. And since you're cool too, we should be friends. The Music Lover Podcast. We'll see you there. seven talent connects top brands and agencies with exceptional creative marketing and digital talent every day whether you're looking for the right position or to hire the very best talent 24 seven boasts more than 500,000 vetted and interviewed freelance and full-time candidates experience the difference at 247 talent.com that's 24 s-e-v-e-n talent.com
2: Welcome back to Content is Your Business. We are here with Tracy Doyle, and we're going to start deep diving on just being creative and tapping into that. So I think that we had talked before about like just kind of projects that you've worked on, and I personally want to hear about something that you're passionate about that you really felt like built an emotional connection with your user. Sure. I I really
1: (laughs) feel passionate about and I'm not just saying this, I really actually feel passionate about all of the work that we do. It's really exciting to be in this space right now, because I think what we are seeing from a budgetary perspective is that those budgets um, from brands, they're not getting bigger to allow for content and to to allow for engagement with companies like T-Brand Studio. They're simply being reallocated. And so those traditional advertising budgets in terms of making a big, splashy campaign, which is so... In the fashion world, um, those budgets, again, as I said, they're being reallocated so that there's less being allocated to a traditional campaign. As we imagine, in September, all of the the campaigns come out and more money is being allocated to this content or storytelling, which is really what we do at The New York Times. And so a perfect example of that is a program we did for Tiffany & Company and their involvement with the Whitney Biennial. And they uh, were sponsoring the Whitney Biennial and they said they came to they were sponsoring the Whitney Biennial and they came to T-Brand Studio and they said, we'd like to make some films. We want to make four films but we don't really know what they should be about. We just know that we want to engage a very large audience and get them excited about contemporary art now in a way that is accessible. And so that was really key because it wasn't about Art Forum or Art. It was about how can we tell a great art story and, and what does that look like? And that those were the only parameters and what we're finding is that brands are coming to us and they're they're giving us very little parameter in terms of how they want us to work and they really look to our thinking. And so I'm really a closet nerd. I'm really best left in a room by myself with books. And so, uh, you know, this job is perfect (laughs) for me. And so, you know, going back to the Tiffany example, I was thinking about a series. So I had to make a series of films and I didn't just want to make a series of films like traditional fashion films. I had to tell an art story, but I wanted wanted there to be an overarching story, and then I wanted to iterate on that story in different episodes. And so I was thinking about John Berger and Ways of Seeing, and I wrote to the BBC and I said, could I use this name? Could I change it and use it? And I got permission, and it became New Ways of Seeing, which was the name of the film series. And so in 1972, when this series came out on the BBC, it was really about how we looked at art at that time. And they used the word facsimile and um, sort of looking at the painting or looking at it in a book and talking about whether or not that changes the meaning. Well, today, and you can't see my hand, but I'm doing a scrolling motion. Today, we look at art on our phones. And does that change the meaning? And so that was really the, the crux of the first episode is uh, was that question. And then building upon that those stories. And so finding a really smart way that even if you didn't know about John Berger in 1972, new ways of seeing Is a really broad title. Anybody can associate with that. Anybody can understand what that means. But at the same time, it had a level of sort of um, art influence and art reference. And then making the films that um, four different films under different topics under that story kind of umbrella. And I think for us, the Biggest win about this was the only brand was uh, the only sort of brands association was a, a blue splat of paint at the end of each. Film. No one was required to wear Tiffany jewelry, and that really says a lot about the forward-thinking nature of Tiffany as a client and as a company that is leaving an old way behind and sort of moving forward and thinking about a new way. And they were not; uh, they did not require us to have people wear jewelry. And people really engaged with these films. We saw, and I can't be specific, but unbelievably high engagement for these three-minute films, and unbelievably high engagement for this page and the content that was on the page where these films lived and that really says a lot about a value add and Tiffany can be associated with that but they wanted to bring something else to the table instead of just another picture of a ring or a bracelet Uh, and so that was really tremendously successful for us and for them and it was really my first big project when I when I entered the studio and so for us it has really set the tone of the kind of work that we do.
2: That's so interesting. So they didn't have any product placement at all in them? Not a single product. Wow. And beyond the films, were there any other
1: activations or experiences um, that supported this campaign? Just the social media component. So obviously social cutdowns for all the films, but it was really about a long-form film component. Amazing. So interesting. So...
2: It's it's actually even more fascinating because we had just on a podcast with um Ritesh Gupta from uh Vayner. from Vayner and he had done something similar with Budweiser where they just wanted their name associated. And I think that this is going to be part of a longstanding trend where like they just want a positive notion towards their brand as opposed to like really having the product front and center. Sure.
1: And that's really the differentiation between, you know, a traditional advertising agency and a content studio. We could make an advertisement for you if that's what you come to T-Burn Studio and you ask right. for. But most brands, again, are moving in, in a different direction. So do most it-
3: brands have – I mean, I know you said a lot of them come with limited direction. But are they coming to you because maybe they're reading an ad age or they say, hey, this is the new trend. You know, maybe c- conventional advertising isn't the way to go. Let's call the T-Brand studio. This is our budget. We want to do something out of the box. Do it for us. I mean, is that what they're coming to you and saying, and then you have to come up with this really creative solution for them?
1: Yeah, we just did a beautiful project with Max Mara, and it was—it's not launched as we record this, but it will be by the time this is released. And it was—it uh, was several meetings uh, in Milan and in New York, and then being assigned a project. And really, the only parameters were we'd like a Tiffany-esque film, which meant. Um, sort of boiled down to witty, fun, but intellectual. And we want to go back to our DNA, which is coats. And so I wrote a fairy tale that's sort of a satire of the fashion industry, and it's called A Coattail. Cute. I love, love that. that. So cute. Yeah. So what does that look like? What is it? <laughs> so it's about two women who meet on the street every day, and one woman is Morgana, and she is sort of maybe the quintessentially – Devil Wears Prada character who storms through the street with her big coffee and her phone and scarcely looks up um, and bumps into people but is uh, uh, very certain that she's the only person that matters. And then there's um, our heroine. Her name is Clarissa and Clarissa believes that the powers of the heart are the most magical of them all. And in the end, Clarissa wins Morgana over. And there's a lot of beautiful coats in there, but it was really a story for the times. And I work in an environment where I see some pretty sad things and I sort of, you know, look at the cover of the paper every day and I get to, I have the opportunity to bring something light and something cheerful and a narrative and we went back to the DNA of Coates but we also very gently remind people that, you know, being kind is maybe something that we want to embrace today.
3: Do you find this branded content is more effective or maybe works better in the digital space than than traditional print?
1: Absolutely. We really see high engagement with video. I'm a film first person. I think in a definitely in terms of film, all my projects are really, how are we going to make this a film? Especially when you're putting these films as truncated edits into an ad unit on the New York Times, a 15 second edit in a in a native New York Times flex frame is really, really engaging to see something and think, oh, I want to go and explore that. Uh, we're really moving away from... Um, and not I, I, I'll say in the fashion space I'm moving away from suggesting a print first initiative
2: I think I don't know I was just going to say I think that as consumers we're just switching our mindset right we're not just consuming to consume but because of the sentiment that you created around that entire coat story there's probably a high demand for people just envisioning those products in their lifestyle right so it's not just it's not just I need a coat but it's I really love this. I need to own this in my lifestyle. And there's direct association.
1: Yeah, it's also, you know, Max Mara is a family-run company, and they are the most wonderful group of people, truly, truly special individuals. And I wrote something and I made something that reflects the experience that I had with them. And they got to have something that really... um in a very subtle innate way says we are we believe in this and we're going to put it out there as our branded content and it's about being kind and it's about sharing human kindness and that kindness will prevail and that is really gutsy and amazing for a brand, a fashion brand to do. And I think that that platform sort of branded content, if you will, allows for uh, this sort of storytelling that goes back to this idea that I said in the very beginning, you know, there's an idea, there's a person, there's a heart behind a lot of these companies, and I get to help reveal that.
3: So this is maybe a non-New York Times question, but Uh, you know, for really everyone here is, you know, we talked about, you know, how agencies are starting to compete and and suffering a little bit because of the, the, the rise of branded content studios. But if an agency produces a piece of content or an advertisement, whatever you want to call it, then the brand owns that piece of content and then can market it however they want on any TV station, on any website or any magazine. If I make something, F with the New York Times or with another branded content studio? Does it live exclusively there, or do I own the rights to that content and then can remarket it in other places?
1: That's a great question. We make work very much like an agency would where we give you the work and the only real parameter or sort of, I shouldn't say parameter, but the only real caveat tends to be the talent negotiation. And so we'll negotiate a talent or if there's an influencer or a narrator or what have you, we'll negotiate a usage for a certain amount of time. But and should the brand want to use the the piece beyond that negotiated amount of time, they're free to renegotiate. But they own that content outright. So they do own it. They do own it. They can use it in any capacity except for broadcast.
3: So that's very interesting. So it's not an exclusive. No.
1: So we really work in the in the manner that an agency work would work, where they can use it on their website. They use it widely on their websites, on their social media channels. It's really limiting to broadcast. We don't allow for television negotiation. Or I mean, we can, but traditionally in our negotiations, it's not about, you know, traditional television.
2: So how do you navigate through generational differences, obviously? Like, so if millennials are going to, are under the mindset that it's kind of all about me and like, how does it affect me? um, How do you... Are millennials all
1: about me? (laughs) Yeah. Are you a millennial? No, unfortunately not. (laughs) um unfortunately I not yeah.
2: <laughs> I don't know how but I still classify as a millennial so <laughs> so yeah sure how is it all about me
1: <laughs> it's always about you uh, it should be
2: right always. <laughs> so so how are you able to kind of create differentiating factors within the content that you create
1: Sure, I think the you know conversations with the brands up front we always um, and and I always really insist on an in-person meeting with the client, even if that means me getting on a flight to Paris or to Milan or to any other place in the world there is uh, a conversation that has to happen. And sometimes the brand knows what they want or doesn't know what they want, but they usually have a sense of who they want it to be for. And that comes through those conversations and then um, just creating, you know, the idea to, you know, to augment that.
3: So for brands today that are starting up, um, would you recommend you know it doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, working with the new york times but would you say to a to a startup or a small sized company instead of having a, a marketing budget that utilizes traditional media would you recommend them using content as as a as a vehicle as, instead of you know maybe a banner ad or something else
1: yeah, definitely. I think that, um, and content can mean a multitude of things, which I think is really, also really exciting. Content can mean a film, it can mean a still photograph or a series of photographs, it can mean copy, it can mean a poem, it can mean a podcast podcast. Content can be so many different things, and so I think that, yes, I would definitely encourage younger or um, emerging companies to reconsider traditional advertising budgets and traditional advertising ways of thinking. And- I really
3: hope my clients are not listening to this.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to
4: say, even with – we heard from a traditional advertiser earlier this week, and they even come from a digital-first perspective, and now they're going in the – we're going with responsive TV right. first, perspective. Yeah. And so to your point to video, you know, but yeah. um, so that's even changing.
3: But it makes it challenging because I think that companies need to have the creative mindset. They have to have a story. I mean, unless you have the ability to outsource to an organization that has talent like yourself that could do the work for them, it's very easy to say, I want this. But I think a lot of people don't realize what it takes, what it costs. And there's an intangible cost to the creative process.
1: It's very labor intensive. I won't lie. It's very, it's hard. It requires a lot of people. But, you know, when I worked on my own, I could say that I was, you know, one person in a living room and I could have written about that. And I could have, you know, still told the story and it would have been on a different scale. But I think specifically for young companies... The world needs new ideas. The world needs entrepreneurs. And it doesn't mean you have to go to the New York Times. I mean, eventually we would like you to be able to come to T-Brand, but I wouldn't want to ever discourage people from thinking about content um, if they're starting out. You know, maybe you just have to reframe your idea of what that content is. So I agree with
2: you. I think there's something to be said about like, look, there's grassroots marketing, right? And I think that if you build up enough of an audience, essentially you generate the budget where they can start working with you on like a higher level. But I think that like if they're not investing in their immediate social media and they're they're not investing in their personal stories and what's, what's even happening behind the scenes, what's happening in the office, then they're never going to get to the level of wanting to create or the understanding the value of creating this external highly produced content right so i was um listening yesterday to the chief strategy
4: officer uh, robert rose he's uh with the content marketing institute and um he had mentioned if you look back at, from like 2005 to like 2020, um, you had like a loyalty strategy, you had marketing tactics, you had a marketing strategy. Right now, we're in the business strategy of content, and in 2020, it's going to be the business model. And so, I think if everyone kind of keeps that mm-hmm. in front, <laughs> yeah. um, that's where every organization is going. And I think he um, did a really well job of pointing that out from the L'Oreal's to the Pepsi's to the Mandela's. um, Every organization, uh, CPG, beauty, fashion, and then media, publishing, all those lines are blurred right now, but content is top of mind.
1: Also, with content, you can make an emotional connection and we live in such a connected and yet so fundamentally disconnected world where we're really disconnected from one another. And, you know, we live in these spaces and, you know, we stand packed in subways and yet we all have our headphones on and we all have our phones in front of us. And, um, I think that, with my work, I try to make people feel emotional. Maybe you didn't feel emotional about A Coat before, but I feel emotional about this brand and the the people that I've met there. And I wanted to tell an emotional story and create an emotional impact. And I think that you can do that in with content in a way that you can't do that with Again, I was you know, the girl on the beach. That's, there's no, that's, and also that's not a story. That's an aesthetic. And there's a fundamental different from a difference from a creative directing position that, you know, there's an aesthetic where you slick back hair and you have highly contrast black and white, But again, that's not a narrative. That's not a story. And I wrote those words that I read to you and I read them always to myself. Above all, I'm a storyteller and I have to find that story, not just what it's going to look like.
2: I love that you're saying that because I think that we forget that like we do things based on those emotional connections. So like why, why do we do things based on these emotional connections from your perspective as the creator of content? Like what kind of actions do people take? What do you think? It's like, why would we purchase something based on an emotional action?
1: I think that maybe an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old, maybe they might not have heard of Max Mara. They may have heard of Gucci, but maybe not Max Mara. But they they see something or they, they watch something and they engage with something that makes them feel different. And they are more compelled to then... Maybe they Google or maybe they start realizing that iconic camel color or it's, you know, I I think actions are really based on emotional response. And I think what we looked for when Marky Mark was dropping his pants, um, that was an emotional response, but it was a different time and it was a different kind of emotional response and it got a response. And now we're looking for a different response, especially in an oversaturated market. We don't need another person to take off their clothes. We don't, it doesn't provoke any kind of emotional response. Right. So
2: the fact that like, I don't know from from watching the coats content specifically, people would all of a sudden have like a little bit of a co- cl- a, a much more advocacy towards the brand that would yeah, make them want make to purchase something. they people feel really good.
1: Yeah, we've had unbelievable feedback about the Tiffany program, which even though it's been over for months now, people are still talking about these Tiffany films because you felt really good and you felt like you learned something, mm-hmm. and it brought the idea of Picasso, where you see you know Picasso's imagery from the front and the side and the back and all all sides at one time, and it was Jerry Saltz literally, you know, laying on the ground and talking, and it breaks things down into a very tangible, sort of very tactile, edible uh, format that everybody can understand and react to and laugh about, or it makes them feel good, and therefore they think about Tiffany in a different way.
3: Do you feel a responsibility or is it difficult to, when a brand comes in? Is there a guarantee to a brand that there is? Because how do you know that, a, that an audience is going to resonate with something? So, you know, this Tiffany campaign obviously was very successful uh, and you can monitor that. But what happens if you create something that doesn't resonate with an audience? What is the.
4: Well, it's an interesting question yeah. because um, the Guardian and they actually were advertising that they're guaranteeing revenue from their brand and cut
3: yeah
1: how
4: wow. do
3: you do
1: that yeah um I'm really 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 difficult to please and so <laughs> if I if I like something I mean really difficult and since I was a child and um, I think maybe maybe that's why everybody was always trying to make things beautiful for me because I was always so displeased about everything no um, can we call you a millennial now <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am the hardest judge of the work and I put so much into it that I can't write that I will guarantee, but I'll give you everything I have. And if I don't like it, I think other people won't like it. But if I discover something um, and I feel really excited about it, I think, all right, if I I like it, then surely somebody else will like it. There has to be
3: companies that that approach that maybe... You don't have a love for, or again, it doesn't have to be you, you know, it could be Buzzfeed or it could be vice or there are companies out there that have used, you know, it could be a tobacco company that has a huge budget and wants to do something. And you may not be an advocate of smoking, but yet you have to create a campaign for them that drives traffic to their website unless
2: you refuse that campaign could you refuse that campaign
1: for me i'm lucky because i'm the creative director of luxury and fashion and yeah. i love um i love and can always find something really exciting about the clients that we work with because my process is very research oriented i said i'm a nerd i'm best left in a room with a pile of books and the first thing i do is i have a researcher pull a file on a brand mm-hmm. No, I've never seen or worked with anybody who works like that. It's but, fa- something- but
3: fashion is a controversial uh, category. I mean you have luxury brands, but then you also have uh, a lot of fast fashion houses or brands that get um, bad press for maybe you know subpar labor conditions or, or sourcing conditions. And now they come to you for a campaign. You know, What happens if you don't believe in that company or you don't believe in their sustainable efforts or whatever it may be? You still have to produce something great.
1: My, my job is to find the story that I feel really strongly about. And I think that I've never not been able to find an amazing story. And so I still feel good about the work that we do.
2: So that's actually kind of funny because now we're going to break for a commercial break but when we come back we're going to talk about what's your story. <laughs> so essentially what your what's your story is more personal information about you. Um and then we'll be right back after this. I'm not a
1: millennial. <laughs>
0: You can follow us on social media at Content Biz Show. That's Content B-I-Z Show. And episodes are available on our website, contentisyourbusiness.com, and wherever the best podcasts are found. You can also check out all of the other Mouth Media Network shows at mouthmedianetwork.com.
2: content is your business so it's our final segment and that means that it's time for your side of the story so essentially your side of the story is the story behind the storytellers um so we have no idea what any of our co-hosts are going to ask or in what order and in order to determine that we choose a number from 1 to 20 and the closest match to that random number wins so eddie do you want to pick a number eddie pick a number 16 16 okay lisa your turn Five. Okay, and mine is going to be 19. So let's round up our auto-generator number thingamabobbit. <laughs> and our first number is five. Oh, Did you perfect. know that? No. <laughs> Wish okay, I was Lisa. that lucky
4: with Powerball. <laughs> um, all right, Tracy, you said you moved here 14 years ago. And in the business that you're in, sometimes you can be—it's easy to get jaded, Mm -hmm. right? So, what is your most
1: memorable um, moment living in New York City? My most memorable moment living in New York City—that's
2: a hard question. I don't even know that I know the answer to that.
1: (laughs) I thought about it too. I, I think that I will say that I. New York City is my great love, and every day is memorable. And every day after 14 years, I still think, oh, I am in New York City. And when I write up my address, I write that I live in New York, New York. And I remember that I drove here in a U-Haul with my things mm. and to interview for my first job. I, I couldn't even afford a flight. And so I drove myself and I stayed overnight and I did my interview. and From I, Canada? From Canada, wow, from Toronto. Impressive. And I drove back home and um, and everything has been... Like I've been saving material for a book because it's all been so fascinating and interesting and and therefore memorable and not easy always, mm-hmm. but miraculous and memorable and things that could only happen in New York.
3: Where in the city do you live?
1: I live in the West Village. Uh, total West Village. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to get and, priced out though, so right. I don't know how much longer. And are you
4: starting the book? I... I have. You live in West Village. You have to start the book. Before I have. You. <laughs> I
1: actually um, on Monday was the eclipse, and yes. I wrote the prologue to the book there on Monday because beginnings. it was about a new beginning, and because Susan Miller said that I should. That's right. I
2: love that so much. Are you going to give us little excerpts on Instagram?
1: Maybe.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Susan Miller also said that I should be starting a podcast in the month of August. And so here we are. (laughs) I don't even know who who, who is Susan Miller. Susan Miller Susan Miller knows everything.
1: Susan Miller knows everything. So every day is memorable. And every day, for all of the struggles, I am so, I feel so blessed to live here. Thank you for sharing.
2: So we're going to do our auto number generator again. Um, and the next number is nine. Guess what, Eddie? Your turn.
3: So I'm a little scared to ask you a question because in front of you, you have a sign that says feminist AF. This may be a, a PG-13 <laughs> audience, so I'm not going to say anything else. So you said you're a little jaded by this industry. Um, why do you say that?
1: First, I want to caveat this by saying that I did not bring with me the sign that says feminist I was going to ask AF. you a Donald
3: Trump question, so um, I changed L- it
1: after L- that L- Lisa, Lisa gave me this um, placard that is now sitting in front of me, which I'm very grateful for. Um, I think I'm, i, I maybe jaded isn't the right word, but I think there's been a lot of frustration on my end, and potentially on the end of other women, um, about the way that we're portrayed in the media, and in particular fashion advertising. And... For me, really, a lot of the catalyst of what I do is not to say that anything is right or wrong or good or bad. It's simply that I wanted to create a different point of view than another woman laying on the beach with a fragrance bottle. It's just we're in a different time and there are different stories to tell and we can portray women in a different way. And so for me, that is a big part of my work and my interest.
3: Didn't you say, not to put you on the spot, that prior, in your prior life, um, you, you used to model?
1: I did a long time ago, but my nose apparently wasn't up to snuff. And declining a nose job, my modeling days were numbered.
3: Well, we don't have to talk about nose. No, <laughs> you, know, you can't see my nose here, but... Uh,
1: we'll show you in pictures. That's a true story, too. <laughs> so I
2: guess it's my turn. What is your... your You are bookworm. Tell us the, your top three favorite books. How's that?
3: The Alchemist. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the fountainhead <laughs> um uh, let me think about I mean I mostly collect f- photography books okay. so I, I've um who's your favorite photographer I think the photographer that I've had the most that has had the most influence on me is Richard Avedon because if you look at Richard Avedon's early fashion photography it's very decorated it was always on a set and it was always um a narrative in a different way but he was really influenced by Egon Chile and He was really interested in the idea that gesture and facial expression could tell the entire story. And so when you follow Richard Avedon's um, photography, it gets more and more stripped down. And it really taught me about... um, about gesture, just what I said—gesture and facial expression—and a different way of conveying emotion that wasn't based on so many of the things that we identify with in terms of fashion photography, sets and styling and hair and makeup. It was really a, more of a portrait of who these people, uh, who these people were, and how he connected with them. So, I, I, my re—I don't, I. My book collection is really photography books, which is problematic because I had to take a storage unit to store. The wow. Photography that's books impressive. Because
2: <laughs>
4: you
1: live in the West village.
2: I live in the West village. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, cool. So that's it for this episode of content in your business. And we really appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you so much for Thank taking the Thank you for having time. me. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much. How can people connect with you and like, continue building out that relationship. Find me media. on
1: LinkedIn. If you just Google um Tracy, Tracy Doyle, T Brand yeah. Studio, or Tracy Doyle, The New York Times, um, connect, you'll be able yeah. to connect on on LinkedIn. Okay, perfect.
2: So stories usually end with a final thought and we ask our guests to share with our audience reflecting on today's conversation. Um, do you have any thoughts personally on things that you'd be able to share with our listeners based on this entire conversation?
1: This isn't necessarily directly about Content, maybe more about storytelling, but maybe more that I'm telling you part of my story, and that we all have the, we already have inside of us everything we need to create our own destiny. So, the thing that I will tell you as a final thought is nothing is impossible if you're willing to work hard and you're willing to put the effort in. You can achieve anything and everything that you dreamed of. And and then you can come and tell your own story. I love that.
2: So inspirational. So thank you so much for joining us today. This Thanks was for really having fantastic. Me. Until next time.
3: Edward Hertzman, thank you very much.
2: Lisa Berger, thank you. And my name is Dahlia Strom, and we can't wait to hear your story next time.
0: You've been listening to Content is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show, or to become a sponsor, email us at network.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Content Biz Show. That's Content B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, contentisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by 24-7 Talent. Connect with the best talent at 247talent.com. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening.